Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. Was it a sex game gone horribly wrong? That's what Italy's Supreme Court wants to find out. British tabloids painted a picture of a wild party girl with a dark side. Prosecutors believe that Knox murdered her friend as part of a drug-fueled orgy. Killed Meredith in a drug-fueled sex game gone awry. Cut the throat of her friend while involved in an extreme sex game. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. When I arrived in Perugia as a 20-year-old, I was sexually active, but pretty sheltered. I could count my intimate partners on one hand. But when she was accused of murder, her rather unremarkable sexuality was distorted and magnified into something deviant. They painted me as a femme fatale, and the courtroom and the media ignored the lack of evidence and focused on things like the joke vibrator a friend had bought me that I never used, or what underwear I purchased. All to support a fantastical theory about a sex game gone wrong. The misdirected focus on my sexuality was one of the things that bothered me most about the trials. I could have been a professional dominatrix and it shouldn't have mattered that still wouldn't make me a killer. It was unfair, and not just me. Looking back on those years, we started to wonder, how does the BDSM community feel about their lifestyle being used to vilify someone accused of murder? We started to wonder, what does a sex game gone right look like? What even is a sex game? Does it even involve sex? We decided to find out. So we connected with one of the most respected dominatrixes in L.A., and perhaps the world, Mistress Cyan. For all the vanilla people who don't know, what is BDSM and what is it not? BDSM is a consensual exchange between two people, a power exchange that involves anything from a dynamic of one person serving the other to impact play with spanking, with floggings, and so on. What it is not is abuse. There is a difference between good pain and bad pain. That good pain being like a flogging where it starts off feeling like a massage and it gradually builds so that the different levels of serotonin and dopamine and everything in your system starts to get released and these endorphins start to give you a really nice feeling, makes you feel good. But someone who enjoys being flogged, would not enjoy like a toothache or stubbing their toe. Right. And when people ask, why do you like to hurt somebody? I I explain to them, it's not not really hurting them. It's like getting into a nice hot shower. You turn the hot water up a little bit. It's a little stingy, but not enough to turn it down. Not enough to get out. You turn it up and turn it up. And after a while, it's so hot, but it feels good that if you just got into it at that point, it would feel scalding. And that's what BDSM is about. So it goes from pleasurable and gets better and a little bit more intense, a little bit more intense until basically that pain and pleasure threshold become one. And the pain is the pleasure, the pleasure is the pain. In the lifestyle, many people employ sex and use BDSM more as a foreplay. In a professional sense, there is no sex involved. BDSM is not prostitution. 
We're there to satisfy the mind and the emotions. The biggest sex organ is between your ears. Mistress Cyan is both slight and imposing. She's a tall woman with penetrating eyes and striking red hair that pops against black latex. Now in her 60s, her face shows a hard-fought battle against stage 4 tonsil cancer. To no one's surprise, she won. Cyan has been a pro-dom for nearly 30 years, and though she's known for her skills with the single-tail whip, her journey to become a leader in the BDSM community has been about much more than physical technique. I had fantasies of we would catch somebody and could tie them up or get caught and get tied up. Didn't relate it to anything sexual, didn't relate it to anything other than this is fun. And then a couple of years go by and I started realizing that there was something more to this. And did you ever share that with your intimate partners? My first one, we both played around with it. We got the book, The Joy of Sex. And they had one chapter in there about BDSM, which told me, well, wait a minute, this is not something that's weird or crazy. So I felt a little bit better about it, but there was still a stigma about, you know, you can lose your job about it. My partner and I dabbled in it, played in it. But to me, it was much more deeper than just foreplay for sex. It was something that filled a void. Mm. And I didn't know why. I had a good childhood and a nice family, but there was always something missing. And even in my first marriage, I felt it was something missing. I had not only these fantasies of BDSM, but I didn't feel that I was in the right body. Mm. I went into this sense of denial from the age of probably 15 until 30 about this. Wow. I finally decided to go see a therapist and find out what is this about? Am I a cross-dresser? Am I bisexual? Am I gay? You know, what is this? And I came to the realization that I was transgender and that I was not hurting anybody, damaging anybody. And I eventually came out with it all, which was very scary. It sounds like your journey into transitioning into your true self was part BDSM and part gender transitioning. I had a corporate job. I was working in the music industry. I had a nice family. I had three kids. And everything that anybody had asked for didn't realize that I wasn't happy. Mm. And it affected my first marriage. And that's basically why I think we split up. Mm. Once I was out of that and started exploring a little bit more deeper, I felt like the world was lifted off of my shoulders. Hmm. But I was still kind of living that double life. I was in the music business and managing bands. I was responsible for their careers. And I felt that I'm going to have to talk to these people because if something gets out about me, it could affect them. I realized that I'm burdening other people with my secret. Hmm. I did an open letter to all the record companies and totally came out with it, fearing rejection. And to my amazement, I found that my worst enemy was myself, that every single person's best friends, working relationships, everything all embraced it and said, you know, we're friends with you because of who you are, not how you dress or what you look like or what you're into. No. And it taught me some big lessons. But the toughest letter of all was that I was separated and my ex 
contacted me and said that my daughter and my son wanted to come down and spend the summer with me. And at that point, I had not disclosed that to them. I see. And I was met with this dilemma of, I don't want to say no, because I don't want them to think I don't want them around here, but I can't hide where I transitioned. So that was the letter that I wrote to my ex, put it in snail mail. <laughs> and the next like five days was almost traumatic waiting for the reply was I expected that you're not going to see the kids this done and I got a phone call one night and it was her and she said I got your letter and I'm really happy for you oh I'm glad you finally realized it no the kids and they're like oh they they're not surprised they kind of knew too <laughs> <laughs> My daughter and son came down with me, and again, my own worst enemy. You know, my daughter was having some friends over, and I said, hey, you know, I'll stay in the other rooms. And she was like, why? And I said, well, you know, I don't want to put, you know, and she's like, look, they're not accepting uh, who you are as my parents. They're not my friends. Mm. And I realized, wow, times have changed. This would never have happened when I was a kid. Times have really changed. When I discovered the community, the community wasn't anything like it is today. There were no public dungeons. There was no real internet. And people had their parties at their homes and stuff. You didn't learn by going to classes. You learned from starting at the bottom. And at the time, I liked bondage. And they explained something you really want to do. You really need to experience it as a submissive. And so I started engaging with some people in the bottoming role. The first time was going to be for a, my birthday. And they wanted to give me a birthday spanking. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not into pain. And it turned out that that spanking wasn't anything what I thought it was. It was a little bit steep, but not enough to say stop. And it was kind of erotic. They would spank, kind of do some rubbing, caressing, spank a little bit more. And I thought, wow, maybe this is kind of my balance in life. I thought it was only dominant, but this is touching some buttons here. And so I felt at home in it. And the people I was involved with were very knowledgeable people. And one day a person I was playing with, they said, would you interested in being collared? And I said, I'm not, what is that? And he said, a collar is a symbol of a commitment, like a power exchange. You surrender, you agree to do what I tell you to do and so on. It's all about trust, trusting me that I'm going to use the power and not abuse the power. Hmm. So it sounded really good to me. So I said, sure, let's give it a try. So I got collared and I'll tell you, being collared and being in that space has helped me in every other area of my life. It helped me with self-discipline. It helped me with focus. It's like going to somebody's house and being the first ones to get up and play. I was a very, very shy type of person, very introverted. And I was like, oh my God, why can't we wait till everybody else is doing it? You know, everybody's going to be looking at me. <laughs> but that was my role. If that's what he said we were going to do, that's what we were going to do. And it was difficult sometimes. And then I got over it and I realized it wasn't the end of the world. And uh, one day we were going to go to a party. And he said to me that I'd like to switch. I'd like you to do it to me. And honestly, I first saw him, I thought, oh, fuck. <laughs> but I'd been taught how to do these things because the premise was that you need to learn how to do flogging and how to do whips and how to do canes because that's how you're going to know if somebody is knowledgeable in what they do to you. Mm. So we went to the party. I went into the topping and it was like, oh, oh my gosh, this is my true calling. 
then after that, we had a discussion. And I said, I don't think I can be collared anymore. I don't know if this is the right thing for me anymore. And he said, that's what I thought. I thought you were ready for this and, and moving on. So the collar came off that night. And as a result, this shy person that didn't even want to get in front of people, now I can get up in front of crowds at conventions and speak, a guest speaker at UCLA, Stanford, colleges like that. I got confidence in business. I'm very self-disciplined as far as focusing and prioritizing and organizing. I look back on it and am not ashamed to say that, yes, I submitted as a college slave and learned from the bottom up. But it was much more than the BDSM or the lifestyle part of it. It affected my entire life and helped mold me into being a better person. Mm. I learned about myself. I learned about what I was capable of doing. And it was just a very rewarding situation. In 2010, a longtime BDSM establishment in Los Angeles called Passive Arts was burned down by an angry former employee who shot the owner and his pet wolf. Cyan was asked to take over, and she rebuilt that space into a new dungeon called Sanctuary. It was there that she met Goddess Genesis. Omega gave me a call one day and said she was going to stop by. She wanted to introduce me to this new little sub. So she comes over with Jen. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, we're a little bimbo. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because she was so sweet, so submissive and everything. And at the time, quiet. Who was this bimbo? We could give you lots of reasons to support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener? Hi, this is Cannon. I'm a big supporter of the Labyrinths Patreon page because the work that these people do is really thoughtful and it's one of my favorite podcasts and Patreon accounts in the world. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson. There's been a lot of relationships that I was in where I faked it when I was having sex because I just shut down emotionally because of child sexual abuse and being raped. There's a brokenness there. Yeah. I had had a boyfriend about 20 years ago. He was the first man I'd ever been with that was like, hey, you know, when we make love, that's a, a joint thing. It's not about me. It's about both of us. And if you don't want to engage, tell me. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, honey, you check out every time we've got together. And I just feel like I have to say something. What's going on? Because I gave up a long time ago of telling people, listen, sex is difficult for me. So the boyfriend said, listen, I'm into some things and I just want to show you a book. Don't remember the title of the book, but there were pictures, <laughs> but it talked about BDSM. And I remember going, why the hell would you show me this? And he's like, because I'm sharing with you what I'm into. And maybe this is another avenue that you and I can explore without having sex. Hmm. Our relationship didn't last 
But I will always forever be grateful because I was really struggling in my life. I was trying to heal something inside of me that had been deeply, deeply violated. I was going online and I'm like, oh my God, this is an actual occupation. (laughs) And it was at first the aesthetics got to me. I'm like, nice boots. Oh my God, I got to have those boots. (laughs) (laughs) And then I realized it wasn't so much about the aesthetics. This was a healing thing, not only for me, but there's other people out there that are into this. And are they coming from some of the same Hmm. place Hmm. of trauma that I'm coming from? Sure. I started off as a submissive. My first teacher was Mistress Omega. Out of a bunch of doms from all these movies that I'd been watching, she answered the call. And she talked to me about two hours. And she had invited me to come down to LA and that she would show me some things. I'm from the very close-knit family, so I'm like, hey, (laughs) over Christmas weekend of 2003, I go, mom and dad, guess what? I found out what I want to do with my life. (laughs) (laughs) Did it feel like a coming out moment? Were you like... Yes. And I'm like, maybe you didn't want to know this, but... By the way, I'm going to need a ride to the airport. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how that happened. My parents helped me. They did not disown me. I was like 37 when I moved away from my close-knit family. Omega had hooked me up with a job at the Chateau, which is now closed, but it was very world-famous Chateau. And my other mentor was Sir James. And learned a lot and have a lot of fun. Like, I should write a book just on the Chateau days because it was like training day. (laughs) Does anything jump out as... My first session, James calls me up. I got girls that have called out, can you come out? And I'm getting a lot of calls on you because he and Omega were promoting me. Like coming soon, I was the girl next door, which is very, very, very marketable in this business. Noted. (laughs) (laughs) So my first day, I just walk in. Yeah, we got a client who um, wants to tickle session. Now, one of the things that submissives learn early on that the clients who play Dom aren't necessarily skilled. You gotta keep your eyes open and you act submissive, but you need to be a little dominant. Your physical body can be in danger. Right. It was a tie-up session and tickle session. That's pretty easy. So I hate being tickled. And a lot of times tickle fetishists wanna know, like, are you really tickled? I'm like, yeah, do you enjoy it? No. Well, do you scream and make a lot? Oh yeah. And, and do you thrash around? Oh, yes. Will you get naked? Uh, yes, I do. I do. Like, okay, money is <laughs> important to me. I want to make money. <laughs> so he tied me to this spanking bitch. And he got me under the armpits. And I was like, ah! And the spanking bitch fell on my head. Oh, no. <laughs> the client had to come out of the session and go, um... Genesis is unconscious. Oh, no. no. And like, Sir James, he's like, 
you, girl. What the hell? (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm like, I don't want to go to the hospital. I'm awake now. I'll finish the session. Wow. Super hardcore work ethic. But uh, yeah, so that was my first day. And then I got out calls too. An out call is when a, a client wants to take you somewhere. I'm day number two. I walk in and he's like, hey, Genesis, a client called and he wants to take you up to Spawn Ranch and uh, bury you alive. But I'm like, what? He goes, well, you'll you'll have a straw to breathe through. (laughs) I'm like, no. (laughs) Do you know this client? No, brand new. But he's willing to pay this and he'll take you up in a limousine. Well, you know, Ted Bundy was a nice guy, too, until the moment he killed you. So, no, 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 I'm not doing that. But he can come here and we can pretend that he's doing that. I'm a great actress. So, Wow. Genesis was thrown into the deep end at Chateau, and she learned to swim. But the greatest gift Mistress Omega gave her was introducing her to Mistress Cyan. One day I got this phone call and Jen was asking me if I would be interested in mentoring her because she was interested in moving into Switch, which is someone who does both submissive and dominant stuff. So I I said, yeah. And she came in and we met and we started a program. And at that point, the bimbo aspect disappeared because her work ethic was amazing. She was there every day, on time or early. Everything I told her to do, she was doing. She was already in there practicing with throwing a whip. It was really amazing. I really felt comfortable working with her. And I started building a little bit of a connection. You know, one day we talked and she indicated that she had a desire to maybe be my sub. So we started a lifestyle relationship, a DS relationship with her being submissive to me. It's important to distinguish here between topping and bottoming, which define a role during BDSM play, who's holding the whip and who's getting tied up, versus DS, which is about dominance and submission in a relationship. A submissive is somebody who serves, but in their negotiation, they're like, these are my soft limits. These are my hard limits. These are my absolutely, you cannot, we can't even go there. A DS relationship can be almost marriage-like to family-like, or we're simply play partners and I will be submissive to you while we're playing. So it's what you both define together. So there are a million different ways that people have their thing. For me, it was about self-discovery too. And a lot of it had to do with my healing, with coping with my bipolar symptoms and wanting to grow as a human being. And what makes Cyan great is Cyan takes in the misfits. Hmm. She's like, I have a family and I love them, but we have some dysfunction. We put the fun in it. (laughs) That's what makes her a wonderful mentor and teacher. I fell in love with her during her mentoring. There were a couple of situations where I got overwhelmed by a particular person in our family antagonizing me. And Cyan was like, don't ever let someone 
know where your buttons are. Don't let her take your power away. And I remember she put my chin up to meet her eyes. And I was like, wolf. (laughs) And that was a theme that took a good 15 years to master. Part of the mentorship also had a lot to do with the talking about what it is and what it isn't. My real goal was to be a pro-dom. And she's like, 10% of being a pro-dom is the skill in which you use the implements. But the other 90% is your power over yourself. Hmm. I was teaching her the difference between dominant and dominance, and that you can teach somebody how to dominate someone. But dominance can't be taught. Dominance is developed over time with experience and maturity. The big part of our mentorship is being in control. You're not in control of yourself. You can't expect to be in control of anyone else. Dominance is something that people feel with your presence. It's not how you talk. It's not what you say. It's not necessarily what you do. It's all about how you handle yourself. Yeah, that was a lot of the reason why I wanted to become her submissive or a slave. In a typical DS relationship, a submissive still has limits that are negotiated up front. You can order me to do X and Y, but not Z. But then there are collared slaves. The slave is someone who may be dominant or submissive, but it's about a power exchange. It's about them surrendering Mm. to someone else and making a commitment to someone else. The slave in their negotiation, when they decide they're going to do a DS, they have no limits. They're going to relinquish themselves and their rights to their dom. But that means that they have complete trust. That dominant has just been given that gift. And the person who's accepting that power is making a commitment. And the collar is just a symbol of that commitment. Like a wedding ring is a symbol of a marriage. Somebody doesn't have to be wearing the collar to be collared, and somebody doesn't have to be wearing a wedding ring and still be married, or vice versa. Putting it on doesn't mean you are. But Genesis didn't just become Mistress Cyan's collared slave. DS relationships are not mutually exclusive with more traditional unions. My feeling started to grow for greater than just in a DS relationship. Eventually, we moved in together, got married, and so far, living happily ever after. <laughs> Talking to Mistress Cyan and Goddess Genesis, it's so overwhelmingly clear that their lifestyle and passion is loving and thoughtful and nothing at all like the distorted image of BDSM that law enforcement and media used to vilify Amanda while she was on trial. Given that the BDSM community has been used to vilify others this way, you might expect them to have a complicated relationship with law enforcement. What we do is still considered illegal. Because of domestic violence, where a spouse or a girlfriend would refuse to press charges, there were laws that put into place that says you do not have the ability to consent to an assault. Okay, so technically, if we spank somebody, we flog somebody, we can get arrested. Hmm. The difference is that consent doesn't come into it at that point, but it does come into it at the prosecution point. 
The reason that you rarely see an arrest for anything like this is because when it goes to court and it's consensual between two adults, then they don't win the case. You can be arrested, but you really can't be prosecuted successfully. Thanks in large part to the education and awareness raising that Mistress Cyan and other prominent doms have done in L.A., the local law enforcement is better than you'd expect. I'll give an example. There was someone, a very famous educator in the budget community that had a partner, a college slave partner, and the partner and then played with sensory deprivation and stuff, and he died. Wow. Mm. And so the first thing he did, obviously, is call the police, call the coroner and stuff, and they come in and they did an investigation, and they ruled it as an accidental death. What happens whenever there's something like this, the district attorney will take a look at things, like they will go in and start checking your house. Do you have these equipment? Do you have kink stuff on your computer? Things that would see that you actually are in the lifestyle. And if you are, then they tend to lean towards that this was an accidental thing. It was a practice between consenting adults that went wrong. On the other hand, there's been cases where somebody has murdered somebody through strangulation or something and used the defense that, well, we were doing kinky play. And that's when they bring in expert witnesses in the community to talk about it. And they will look and see if this person has a history of being in a community, if they've gone out to events, if they have things on their computer, and they will actually prosecute the person for murder. So there's a much better understanding of what it is. And the more we talk about it, the more it becomes down into the public, the better understanding it is. And been really excited to be able to speak at some of these colleges because it's not only sexuality classes that invite me to speak, it's sociology classes where there's intake nurses asking, how do, if somebody comes into the emergency room, how do we know if their bruises are from abuse or from BDSM? Hmm. And I used to tell them that if you look, educate yourselves a little bit about it, for example, if somebody's got a bruise and you say, oh, have you seen? That will... If it was from BDS, they're going to know what you're talking about. They're going to know, yes, hmm. it was. If they give you that yeah. deer in the headlight look, chances are it's probably abuse. Also, a good indication would be where the bruises are because mm. people who play responsibly know where to hit and where not to hit. Mm. We don't hit where the kidneys are. We don't hit on the spine. And when someone's being abused, those are often the places that you probably will see where the bruises are. Educating law enforcement and the public has become an important part of the mission of Sanctuary. We're the largest dungeon in Los Angeles and one of the largest, but not the, in the country. You know, we have an event called Awakening each month. They set up little different stations throughout the dungeon, like spanking and flogging, and people who can watch and they can experience it. They come in and they, they can be flogged or they can be spanked or they can be taught how to do it. You can come into a place like Sanctuary and learn and watch and meet people. We've had people who've met here and gotten married. We've had marriages conducted here at Sanctuary. And I think that's the most important part. People feel like they're coming home and they're not coming to a business. The importance of community has always been central to Cyan's vision. And it's something she found lacking in the broader BDSM world. In particular, she saw a rift between the pro-dom world and the lifestyle world. The professionals tended to look down on the lifestyle people as unserious. 
while the lifestyle community had an image of the professionals as only in it for the money. So the basic concept was to try to put together an event that would bring both communities together, the lifestyle community and the professional community, to have a better understanding and celebrate our commonality and respect our diversity. I announced it in 2003 that it was going to be in LA in 2004. And my intention was to basically be a small Los Angeles event. But within about six weeks, it became a national event. I had people from all over the country registering. And it went off so well that after the first OMCON in LA, the chatter online was that the lifestyle people going, wow, you know, we met these professionals and they're really nice people. They really are genuine. And the, some of the presenters and teachers we had from the lifestyle professionals were like, wow, some of these people really know what they're doing. Okay. And some of us even learned from them. So it bridged the gap and it erased that, that bias towards each. And we have been in Los Angeles. will be our 18th year. They eventually expanded to hold a second DomCon on the other side of the country. We were in Atlanta for 12 years. Then we moved it to New Orleans in 2016. Not only did it unite the community, but it's been the place that anybody who's got an interest in this that has been spurred by either videos or seeing something on TV can come and learn. We do 60 classes over the course of the weekend, everything from beginner technique type of things on how to do it you know, and do it safely, all the way to very advanced type of things that those of us who've been around for 30 years doing it still need to learn because we always are learning. I mean, quite honestly, what we call edge play, the things that are really like fire play, knife play, those were some things that you never saw 20 years ago, except in rare cases. And now it's mainstream. There's been mm. so much education on how to do things safely. We even had a class in liquid nitrogen play. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which I never, ever had a concept of what it was. But it was very interesting on how to use liquid nitrogen in a safe way in BDSM, which was amazing. How fun. We first made contact with Mr. Cyan pre-pandemic. And when we learned that DomCon New Orleans was approaching, we realized we had to go. So we asked if it would be okay for two vanilla noobs like us to come and see what it was all about. Mr. Cyan invited us to be her personal guests. So we booked our tickets. While DomCon LA is a massive affair, DomCon New Orleans is a little more intimate, which was perfect for us. For one, I was terrified of being recognized. Can you imagine what the tabloids would say if they found out Amanda Knox was attending a dominatrix convention? DomCon was held in a hotel conference center, the same ballrooms and breakout spaces that likely hosted real estate groups and bar associations the week before. And like the Innocence Network conference, where you might have no idea that the man next to you in the lobby spent 20 years on death row for a crime he didn't commit, here we found ourselves mingling with people in casual dress who may have been pro-doms or collared slaves. Some of this became evident when we met up with Mistress Cyan and Goddess Genesis in the hotel bar. Casually chatting over a glass of wine, people would approach and kneel before her, gaze at the floor and beg her permission to speak. We started to wonder what they thought of us, sharing a table with Mistress. Did they think I was a visiting dom and Chris was my slave? Or 
as one of her slaves later asked us, if we were both subs petitioning to become members of Cyan's DS household. The conference officially began the next day, and after the opening ceremonies, we wandered around the vendor's market, where all manner of corsets and latex and whips and cuffs and floggers were for sale. The first workshop we attended was a flogging workshop led by Mistress Cyan. Unlike the whip, which gives a stinging sensation, the flogger is made of many strands of soft leather, and when used properly, it gives a thudding sensation. Mistress Cyan, in her late 60s, is not a physically strong woman. But flogging, we learned, was not about strength, but precision, striking the same spot with just the right intensity until the thudding slowly builds up to that liminal space where pleasure and pain are indistinguishable. Afterwards, we went back to the vendors and bought our first flogger. And there, on the main stage, we saw a woman laughing and struggling to climb inside a giant condom-like balloon being inflated with a leaf blower. One of our favorite events was the pet show. Some subs like to play at being animals, a specific flavor of a master-slave dynamic. Most of the pets were dogs, but there was also a rabbit and even an alligator. As you might expect, most of these pets enjoyed being scolded for misbehaving. The alligator in particular kept ignoring the show events and going after the bunny rabbit. This playful and silly side of the BDSM community was a pleasant surprise. The workshop we attended the following morning was life-changing. The topic was protocols in a DS relationship, and several doms and subs spoke of the importance of clear communication and established levels of service. During a play party, they might be in high protocol, where the sub is dressed in zippered latex with a ball gag in their mouth and can't speak unless spoken to, even to use the bathroom. But that level of formality is inappropriate at the grocery store, where a more informal protocol might render the submissiveness of the sub to the dom almost invisible to the untrained eye. The more we learned about DS relationships, the more we realized that varying situations call for varying protocols, and that we could incorporate that level of clarity and communication into our own vanilla relationship. Sometimes we're in comfort protocol, and now we formally announce that. Right now, I don't need to be challenged, just snuggled. Sometimes we're in aid protocol. A family member or friend needs help, and one of us must direct energy away from the other. Focalizing the protocol heads off any resentment or feelings of being ignored. And sometimes we're in growth protocol, we are ready to be challenged and need help from our partner to encourage us to take that leap. The final night of DomCon, there was the play party in the main ballroom. People would be dressed in their fetish gear. They'd be whipping and flogging, binding and tickling, dominating and humiliating, and who knew what else. We made it this far, growth protocol. So we dressed in black, brought our brand new flogger, and leapt into the deep end. I will first capture the mind before the body. I may have the person kneel on their knees with their elbows down, their face down, and all they're going to hear is my footsteps or my voice. The only thing they're gonna feel is my hands on them. And it basically creates an environment that they're focusing within. They're not distracted by what's around or anything else. They're looking down at the floor. 
I'm talking to them. I set the tone. When I tell them to go to position two, which may be kneeling up and presenting where they're presenting their wrist, okay, so I can put some cuffs on them. They're already going into that mindset of submitting. So when I put them up and putting them on a piece of equipment, like a St. Andrew's cross and start using a flogger on them, they're already kind of drifting into that mindset. When I start to do something with a landscape flogger, it's like a soft massage. And the rhythm and the feel of it tends to relax you. And as you get relaxed, it has a lot of psychological and physiological things that happen in the body. It triggers our primal response. Our adrenaline kicks in. When we're in pain, endorphins kick in so that your body can handle the pain. So when we're doing this real light flogging that's very sensual, okay, your mind is tricking your body into saying, hey, we're being hit, we're being hurt, we need to release some of these endorphins. I've never done drugs, but people who have tell me that being in subspace and being on a high are very similar things. You just feel like you're walking two feet off the ground. As you build farther into your scene, you might see something like a cane or a bullwhip. And those are things that instead of being thuddy are very stingy. And the reason for that is that stinging brings a different level of endorphins into it. The thuddiness brings one level. When you get into the stingy, it kicks into a second level of endorphins throughout your body, which puts you into a deeper subspace. Subspace is such a nice, wonderful space headspace to be in and makes your whole body feel good that you yearn to play again and do it again. Chasing that feeling was not what brought us to the play party that night. For us, it was curiosity. The hotel ballroom was filled with BDSM equipment. Flogging benches, wooden crosses, bondage frames. The lights were turned low. The crowd was decked out in latex, plastic see-through corsets, nipple pasties, military-style long coats. There were doms in stiletto heels and slaves wearing ball gags, and also a cheese platter out front. We saw people being vacuum-sealed into latex bags like freezer-packing a steak, others playing with razors. In the midst of all that, I approached Mistress Cyan and asked if she would do us the honor of playing together. She agreed, and Amanda went first. She disrobed down to a thong, and Mistress Cyan led her through the routine you heard her describe a moment ago. She started her on the floor in a submissive position and slowly brought her up to be cuffed to a St. Andrew's cross, then started in with the flogger. I was acutely aware of how vulnerable I was, how exposed I was, and a rational part of me worried that the tabloids would find out, that it would be yet another headline about Foxy Noxie and sex games. But taking that risk also felt important. It felt like a way to say, I will not let my freedom continue to be limited by this false story. And it was a way to understand how wrongheaded those sex game accusations were and how unfair they were to the kind and caring people I'd met in the BDSM community. But all these meta concerns soon drifted away as the flogger and then the whip focused my attention on my bodily sensations. It was just me and Cyan, and the pain, or the pleasure, and the anticipation of what was coming next. Going through a scene, adjusting to higher and higher levels of pain over 45 minutes or an hour, 
Entering a mind space where that too hot water doesn't feel scalding exactly, but intense in a different way, where an unexpected moment of softness, the leather of the flogger brushed against your cheek, can give you chills, it's hard to describe. Starting off, it feels like I'm getting a massage. You don't hear other things, you are highly focused on that. You get into a rhythm and it's euphoric. When your dom is present and paying attention, she would catch me before my body was ready to give out. And people experience that in different ways. Some people are very euphoric. Nothing in the world could bother them. They just feel so good. Other people get so lethargic to where they need to sit down because if they stand up, they're going to be dizzy. The top space, being a dominant, is just the opposite. If you are ultra-focused, what you're doing to somebody, you can hurt them. There's a lot of responsibility on your part. So your focus is intense. It doesn't push my buttons to have somebody scream in pain. What pushes my buttons is the moans of ecstasy. That excites me, that pushes me up. And in a scene, it, we tend to bring each other up to another level as we go. I don't even speak once I get there. And it's like, my eyes are like, Ugh. so I am at ecstasy. And that's when she take me down and do some massaging the rubbing of the temples and the blanket and the water and sugar. I'd often get Coca-Cola <laughs> and water <laughs> or some orange juice. Hmm. And a lot of play parties have food and there is a very specific purpose for that. You want to replenish when you come out and rehydrate. That's why it's important that when this person gets into that space, you sit them down, you do some aftercare with them, make sure that they have some water, piece of fruit, that the next day they're eating protein to replace the amino acids. There's this thing called sub-drop. My early years at DomCon, I got so much play. I'm a play whore. I like the top and I like the bottom. So I was getting all kinds of play. And then Sunday would come and I would just be like, I don't want to get out of bed. I don't know. <laughs> That's why it's important to get that sugar and because then the sub drop won't be so intense. Sub drop can actually bring on depression. Yeah. Sometimes I'd fly for a week and then it's like, <clears throat> I don't like to have views on how other people dom. But one of my, my critiques of people, when I hear them say, I don't do aftercare, I'm like, well, you're a shitty dom shitty play partner then because I think there's a responsibility yeah. to make sure that they're okay mentally and emotionally because you just spent 20 minutes just cracking their back open with a bullwhip. I mean, it was consensual, but there's a responsibility on your part now to make sure they're okay. And that's the bottom line about what this lifestyle is about too. It's about caring it's about loving, and it's about compassion. And your submissive is pleasing you, but they're pleasing yourself by pleasing you. They're finding mm -hmm. satisfaction in doing that. They're not doormats. Mm -hmm. We can't, as dominance, take somebody's power from them. There's no legal way that we can do that. It has to be given. It has to be that power exchange. Most submissives, they're very in control of themselves. They have high self-esteem. 
and the enjoyment they get. It's doing something for somebody else, like in a vanilla relationship that's not kink. Okay. You get your partner flowers or bring them candy or bring them some kind of surprise. And, you know, it makes you feel good to see the smile on their face. One of the more beautiful things that we discovered from hanging out with you two was the variety of ways that people's kinks manifest and what they want their DS relationship to look like. And I remember someone talking about a guy who wanted to be like a butler who was kind of clumsy. Oh, Schmedley. Yes, Schmedley. Schmedley. (laughs) Mistress Absolute from London has a Schmedley and he's amazing. The butler uniform, the silver tray and the Oh, yes, ma'am. Yes, yes, ma'am. I all, and, and he loves to be berated. Schmedley, where's my drink? Oh, right away, <laughs> madam, right away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sweet Schmedley. <laughs> yeah, he's amazing. He is amazing. And Mr. Absolute is amazing. The deeper you get into this, the correlation you see between everyday non-kink life and what the fetish BDSM, DS lifestyle are, have a lot of similarities. But you also see in DS relationships where there is that power exchange, they tend to work much better than the most vanilla ones. Because in a vanilla relationship, you may have two people that disagree and that argument can escalate and continue to escalate. Whereas in a DS one, if the dominant is using their power correctly and the commitment of the submissive is there and you say, you know what? We're just going to stop here. It stops. And you have what's called punishment. And punishment in a DS relationship may mean spanking. It may be standing somebody in the corner, which sounds silly to many people. But the basis of all that is for closure. They're not going to continue to feel guilty. The dominant is not going to continue to be upset or mad about it. It's all done. There's a hug. We move on. No guilt, no anger. So there's a lot of things in the DS dynamic that tends to produce much longer relationships and smoother than you do in in a lot of other types of straight relationships. That was another one of our big takeaways from DomCon is ultimately it's just about communication and how to be good communicators with each other and learning to recognize something as a potential point of conflict early on and addressing it. And how consent is super important and that it seems on a superficial level that this person has all the power and this person has none of the power. But if you've given the consent for that person to steer you, there's a deep power in handing that over because if they misuse it, you can revoke it, right? Totally. That's exactly right on. You know, communication and consent is the whole foundation of it. And trust, because in order to give that power up, there has to be trust. In the leather community, the mantra is trust, honor, respect. And when I first got into this, that was what was drilled into me. Okay. Leather is not about what you wear. Leather is really who you are and how you run your life. And if it's trust, honor, and respect, those three things that's good for any relationship, whether it's a business relationship, a DS relationship, a straight relationship, whatever it is. I think the impression that both Chris and I got was, first of all, how mature and mindful 
the BDSM community is, because you have to be. Yeah. And how many things that we could take from it, even into our vanilla relationship, and be better partners to each other because of it. Like, yeah. And we'd love to have you guys back. Yeah. The insight that you were able to get a little bit about this lifestyle, learn a little bit about it, and uh, and meet some of the people, and even maybe try something that they didn't think they would like, and go, wow. This is not, this is much different than I thought it was going to be. There's been so many people over the last 18 years that have come to me and said, hey, will you do this to me? Or can we try this? And I'll do it. And they're like, oh my gosh, this is so nice. I mean, I feel so good. I had no idea, you know, and the next day they're in the vendor area buying a flogger. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I tell you, we felt a lot of intimidation walking into that play party there and that was scary for us. Yeah, yeah. But like ultimately a very, very positive experience. We felt very, very taken care of. So oh, that was amazing. Well, yeah. that's how people should feel. One thing that we all got to remember, we all had a first time. Yeah. None of us walked into the first time knowing and confident and everything else. The first time I ever went to something, I felt like I was walking through a minefield to get to the front door. I was so nervous and so scared. I mean, I must have waited a half an hour in the car before even getting out and trying to decide whether I should go through with this or not. It was just very intimidating and very scary, but I would encourage anybody to come with an open mind. Going to DomCon and getting to know Mistress Cyan and Goddess Genesis, we didn't just learn about the world of BDSM, We learned about ourselves. We realized that neither of us was a dom or a sub, but rather that both of us were submissive to the dominance of our unit. We were in service to the team. Maybe that's just a fancy way to describe a vanilla relationship, but we can say without reservation that stepping into this world made us better communicators and better partners to each other. And more eager to call bullshit the next time we see someone use BDSM as a stand-in for deviancy and criminality. And if this episode pushed any of your buttons, you can find out more at SanctuaryLAX.com and DomCon.com. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. And if you're feeling dominant, please smack this podcast with a five-star review. It would hurt so good. And for the ethically conflicted among you, you might want to check out our series of silly and serious debates, Who's Right?, where we discuss everything from joking about trauma to space billionaires. Find out more on our Patreon page. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. Listener donations are what keeps this podcast alive. Thank you for listening. This episode was written, edited, and sound designed by us, with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. Hold it right there. Let me hear your ads. These aren't the ads you're looking for. These aren't the ads we're looking for. This podcast is listener supported. This podcast is Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. Come on, boys. Let's visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. Ha, 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 ha.